Welcome to the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations Interviews Podcast, a series of brief conversations with leading China experts on key issues in the Sino-American relationship. For more interviews, videos, and links to events, visit us at www.ncuscr.org. I'm Steve Orlins, President of the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations, and I'm thrilled today to be joined by my friend, former Prime Minister of Australia, Kevin Rudd, who has written an absolutely fabulous book called The Avoidable War, The Dangers of a Catastrophic Conflict Between the U.S. and Xi Jinping's China. It is very easy for me to say this is a must read. Between the times that Kevin was prime minister of Australia. He was in Beijing and I was having a conversation with friends one night in Beijing. And they said, the former prime minister of Australia, Lu Kuen, Kevin Rudd was gonna come. I'd heard about um, Kevin previously and said, wow, this this can't be true. Uh, There can't be this guy who's been prime minister of Australia and is fluent in China and like fluent in Chinese. Like a lot of people, I assume that this was kind of hype. Well, Kevin sits down amongst these Chinese and the conversation continues in Chinese. Then it actually, it was the time there was a crisis in the Diaoyudao in the Senkaku Islands. And Kevin begins to explain in Chinese, the difference between sovereignty and administration of the Senkakus, you know, Juquan and Guanichuan. And I'm sitting here and I'm going, holy mackerel, this is is not hype. This guy speaks perfect Chinese. And it told me that this was one of the rare, in fact, I would not say we're one of the only leaders in the Western world who can speak directly to the Chinese people and the Chinese leadership. And what this book does is it takes the experience as a Western leader and the experience of really understanding China and talks about that in the context of US-China relations. Bear in mind, there is no world leader, there's no one I have talked to who has had the experience that Kevin has had in talking with the Chinese leadership directly. The book itself is really a mesmerizing analysis of US-China relations. He says he is a realist, and in some ways, he absolutely is a realist. It's not a happy story, but it is a realistic story. I thought as I read it, actually of de Tocqueville, who was a non-American Frenchman who came to the United States and wrote about democracy in America. Because there's something, there's an an analytical skill that non-Americans bring to the United States to analyze our policy apparatus, why we're making decisions. And what this book does is it explains to the reader what is going on. There are times when I look at it and I wrote in the margin, yes, gosh, but I wish it weren't so. But Kevin doesn't fall into the trap of wishing that things were one way or the other. He explains the way they are in an incredibly readable way. So what I hope is not only that everybody who watches this reads the book, but that everybody in the Biden administration and the Xi Jinping administration reads the book. 
But that's by way of a rather long introduction, which I normally don't do, but it's great. I feel privileged to have Kevin as a friend. And I think we as Americans should feel privileged that he has written a book which really explains what is going on and what we need to do to avoid this avoidable war. So let me start with a question, unless if you want to say something in response to my overly long introduction. Well, uh, Steve, you've been very generous in uh, your uh, introductory remarks. In terms of my Chinese language skills, as you know, they are basically alcohol fueled. And so uh, uh, they only improve after I've had a few drinks. Um, and I'm sure that night we were together in Beijing, that was the case we're as drinking. well. Yes. <laughs> uh, but we both on, but thank you to you and the extraordinary work over such a long period of time from the National Committee on US-China Relations in trying to hold the fabric of this relationship between these two countries together, uh, despite the politics and the geopolitics of the time. But um, yeah, let's, let's, let's talk the book. The book was completed before the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Would you have, ch and there is a section on Russia, would you have changed anything if you had written it today as opposed to when this was completed? I think I made the last changes to the text uh, just uh, before Christmas last year. Uh, and no, not a word I would change because the analysis I presented in the book in terms of Xi Jinping's priority uh, for the Russia relationship um, remains valid. In fact, I think it's been borne out by events. When people, I think, somewhat romantically um, uh, aspire to a Chinese mediating role, um, somehow equidistant between Kiev uh, and, uh, and Moscow. They don't understand the, the dynamics of the Xi Jinping personal relationship with Vladimir Putin, but also the state relationship with the Russian Federation, which is of deep and enduring significance to Beijing. Uh, and for those sorts of reasons, uh, we've had this um, clear evidence of uh, as to paraphrase uh, Mao Zedong, uh, China leaning one way uh, in this um, in this uh, in this uh, conflict between uh, Russia and Ukraine. Did the United States mediate a resolution to the conflict in the Middle East between Israel and Egypt? Uh, could they or did they? <laughs> did they? Did they? Well, uh, as you know, the Middle East is not my patch. Um, but uh, beyond uh, my rudimentary familiarity with the evolution of the, of the uh, peace processes in the Middle East over the last half century, uh, then sure, there were, there were roles and opportunities for the United States back then, despite their deep affinity with the people in the state of Israel to work out uh, arrangements with the surrounding Arab states, not just the Egyptians, but of course, uh, the Kingdom of Jordan as well. And so it's not beyond the remit uh, of a country leaning in one direction to nonetheless play the role of a negotiator. And I think that's the thrust, the logical thrust of your question. Yes. But knowing, knowing as I do, uh, the level of um, chemistry, some would say alchemy, in the relationship between Xi Jinping and Vladimir Putin personally, the most I can see the Chinese doing is at about five minutes to midnight, when, when all else has been exhausted and the Russians have indicated that they have secured as much as they believe they can secure in Eastern Ukraine. They may write in, in my judgment, a cameo role uh, for the Chinese to, to appear to be negotiating some sort of um, 
uh, final ceasefire. But that would be a cameo role rather than a substantive role, particularly at stages of the conflict, which really matter. Xi Jinping will never do anything which would cause uh, the Russian leadership to look askance at what Xi Jinping has secured with this, uh, the robustness of the uh, Russia-China relationship reflected as you and I have both read most recently, Steve, in that extraordinary declaration of the 4th of February signed by the two leaders uh, in Beijing on the eve of the Beijing Winter Olympics. We've seen China comply with US sanctions. We've seen them even go slightly beyond US sanctions. So we've seen union pay reject the opportunity to step in where Visa, MasterCard and other US credit card companies have, have um, left Russia. Uh, I'm not sure I would conclude that there is no path for the Chinese to put distance between themselves and, and Russia. Well, you may prove to be right. Um, I think, as I said before, there is, I think the political space for a, um, a cameo role um, but if there was to be a substantive role played, uh, I would have thought that would have been played in the war's uh, first bloodiest phase uh, when uh, Vladimir Putin was on the march to take Kiev and to crush the country altogether. I think the second point, though, that you have made quite validly, uh, Steve, is Chinese uh, toxicity towards the prospect of being uh, the recipient of incoming US secondary sanctions. <clears throat> And therefore, the Chinese, uh, to quote the Australian poets, have been uh, more Catholic than the Pope um, in adhering uh, to the uh, financial sanctions regime currently imposed against the Russians by the US and American allies. Because China at this stage, as you and I both know, is not in a position to independently navigate its world through the international financial system absent full access uh, to uh, SWIFT and full access to the US dollar denominated um, uh, global financial system. Yeah. The book says, and, and it's absolutely right on, Washington has concluded that Xi has decided to espouse his domestic political model to the rest of the developing world. That's the Washington consensus. Do you agree with it? Do you agree with the Washington consensus? Not entirely, because um, there are two conflicting uh, trends within Chinese political thinking on that question. <clears throat> One is what I describe as the Chinese loud and proud view, which is we have an authoritarian development model here, um, variously called uh, the Beijing consensus at an earliest, uh, an earlier point in history. Um, more recently, uh, China's development model, essentially one which is deeply state-centric and plays uh, no credence to the importance of developing liberal democratic institutions domestically. <clears throat> so there's the loud and proud school uh, within uh, the Chinese political and party establishment. And then militating against that is the uh, legion of somewhat beleaguered professional Chinese diplomats who know that this is a pathway to peril uh, and who do not want to go in that direction at all of being seen to be uh, advocates slash strong advocates of a particular development model in a different country. So if you read the literature in Beijing, as you and I, Steve, are paid to do, it's a divided house on that question. But more broadly, beyond the advocacy of the China development model across emerging markets around the world, I think there is a much broader phenomenon uh, at play, which I do point to in the book, which is a high degree of Chinese uh, active advocacy now 
for changing the nature of the international rules-based system, the normative concepts of the system, and not just in relation to human rights, uh, and also broader global technical standard setting and various other technology products and, uh, like, uh, and the like around the world as well. And what's the organizing principle there? What I see is very much a China seeking to deliver uh, unapologetically the imprint of its national interests and where relevant its national values on the pre-existing institutions of global governance where it can achieve those changes as well as setting up a parallel set of institutions themselves. But as you know, and you and I have both observed and seen this in action, the pragmatists within the Chinese foreign policy establishment are always saying, be careful what you wish for, because this international rules-based system that we've currently got has actually helped China's interests a lot in the past, particularly its access to uh, the global uh, trading system through Chinese accession to the World Trade Organization back in 2002. You say in the book, which is again, quite clearly correct, that China has from its early years seen the US as hostile to its ideological interests. Is that fixed in cement? As we said, something that can be changed and over time, hasn't it, there been swings in CCP views of the United States from really a time when it was pro-American to then shifting to anti-American. And right now that pendulum is in the furthest anti-American state as it's been in a long time. I think there are two elements within the pendulum um, as seen from the Beijing perspective, Steve. One is, let me call it ideological. And the second element in the pendulum is geopolitical. On the ideological pen pendulum, if you go back to Mao's earliest reflections, uh, frankly, before he was even a dominant leader of the party in the 1920s, and then you certainly look at uh, his literature on the United States in the 1930s, wherever the United States happened to be at that stage in its support for either the KMT, indirectly the CCP, in the subsequent war against Japan in China, uh, the bottom line is Mao's position was fairly unerring about the CCP's deep hostility uh, to the notions of uh, Mr. Democracy, as they used to call it, Minzhu uh, 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 but also the wider uh, remit of let's call it universal human rights as then reflected in the 1948 Universal Declaration co-drafted by Eleanor Roosevelt. So I think that's a fairly consistent set of views. The volume switch may go up and down on that internally, but it's a fairly consistent set of views. Where we've had a different set of views in the barometer, uh, Steve, has been um, the uh, change in geopolitics. And if you like, we've now entered into um, uh, the, the final manifestations of a set of changes begun 30 years ago uh, with the normalization of the Soviet uh, Chinese border and Deng Xiaoping. Deng Xiaoping's meeting with Gorbachev in 89. Uh, and then back again, 20 years prior to that with Nixon and Kissinger. And so the underpinning geopolitics of um, uh, China leaning first to the Soviet Union, then leaning towards the United States during the period of quote, Soviet revisionism and Soviet quote, social imperialism. Uh, and then now leaning again to Russia uh, geopolitically in order to leverage China's geopolitical interests against the United States in maritime East Asia in particular. 
I think um, that's generated a separate set of geopolitical uh, factors in the evolving barometer, uh, the, old, the evolving balance, the evolving pendulum, to use your term before, of the Beijing perception of the United States. Like me, you know thousands of Chinese. You have thousands of Chinese friends. Aren't they by and large pro-American? Don't they by and large kind of think the United States is a force for good? And that a lot of the what is going on today and what is going on over history has been reactive. That in fact, they start with a predisposition of favoring the United States. And when our policies push them, they then react as anyone would react in a very negative way. I think um, I've always said and began saying this in a TED talk some years ago, when the Chinese actually give you a name for your country called Meiguo, uh, the beautiful country, it's not a bad start um, uh, because most of the rest of us who are, uh, are from the barbarian world, like we Australians, mind you, Americans and the British regard Australians as barbarians generally, but, um, and probably correctly so, but none of, none of the rest of us, whether it's Yingguo or Aozhou, uh, we don't have this uh, wonderful, as it were, linguistic uh, opening. When people look at the United States through the Chinese prism, the name accorded this great country was the beautiful country. And I think in the evolution of um, uh, the Chinese perception of the United States, it has always been qualitatively different uh, to that of the European colonial powers, as I seek to document in some part in the book. Yep. Uh, because uh, whereas the United States was always keen to get the same trade access, uh, to the Chinese market and came in often on the coattails of the European colonial powers. They always had a level of reservation uh, about uh, what the European imperialists were up to in carving up China. And I think thirdly, the appeal of Mr. Science and Mr. Democracy in that whole period of the 20s and 30s, uh, in the period of, let's call it, um, peak liberalism and the Chinese um, political experiment under Hu Xi and those folks. Um, frankly, it, it leaves a continuing positive legacy in the minds of generations and generations of Chinese intellectuals and frankly, the Chinese people more broadly. A Leninist party, however, has always had a different and dissonant view of that. And depending on who's in charge of the Leninist party at a particular time, we've seen that dialed up dialed to neutral or, or shall we say dialed down, often depending on the geopolitics. I get, it's so interesting that I did my thesis, my college thesis in history on the period from 1944 to 1945. And I read Jeff every day, Jeff Anger Bao was published in Yenon and I read 365 days of it. And it had become progressively more pro-American that the stories, it was about, yeah, it was about Mei Guan, it was the focus was on the Mei, or it was about Zhou Jinshan, you know, it was about Old Gold Mountain, you know, that this was, this was where the future was. And I concluded, there were some historians who had concluded that at that point, 1944, the US was carrying the burden in the fight against the Japanese, that Mao and Joe and Judah and the others had decided to lean towards the United States. And it was bad policy decisions that pushed the communists to then, you know, move to the Russians. And that the, you know, the Russian, the, the, the 
Communist Party of the Soviet Union had sold Mao and Joe and the others down the road uh, a number of times. So I always, it, it kind of, because that was the first serious research I ever did, it kind of set my mind to believing China is often reactive. That a lot of the policies that we see are reactions. In fact, you know, the book has great sections on on Taiwan um, and talks about it talks about, you know, potential scenarios going forward. And I read that I say, yes, these are all true. But what bothers me is and it, it you do get it at the end where you said we need to reestablish a real one China policy. A lot of what China does in these areas is reactive. And that's kind of the narrative that exists to some degree in Washington, which you absolutely accurately tell is often a false narrative. Hey, Donna, you're right to raise the Taiwan question. You see, the United States has uh, no national interest alive in, shall I say, fooling around with the detail of uh, one China policy. Um, if the United States wants to break diplomatic relations with the People's Republic of China, which they established in 1979 after a protracted seven year long negotiation um, and walk away from the formula, which is uh, outlined in the three communiques. Well, that's a sovereign decision of the United States. But so long as you have made those sovereign decisions back then, then it does require a certain level of political and foreign policy discipline by the United States to ensure that you are not as it were, uh, fundamentally violating the precepts of the one China policy, because that can uh, bring about um, unnecessary and partly avoidable reactions. At the second level, however, you know as well as I do, um, Steve, that the resolve to uh, uh, resume Chinese uh, mainland sovereignty over Taiwan has been consistently unshakable and that the real militating factor in China's strategic mind has been the extent to which militarily, economically, and financially, they could secure that objective if political diplomacy with uh, Taiwan in fact failed. So we're dealing with these two realities, what I see is a continuing resolve accentuated under Xi Jinping to regain sovereignty over Taiwan. And I believe he's serious about the 2049 deadline. Um, and then secondly, uh, the unnecessary ebbs and flows, if you like, which arise in day-to-day -day diplomacy from fooling around with the, um, with the text uh, of the One China policy. So these are the two realities within which uh, US strategy and Taiwan policy is required to operate. The book talks about the 10 concentric circles of Xi Jinping, and the first is really staying in power which I agree with 100%. I think taking a military action with respect to Taiwan is the one thing which would cause the overthrow of Xi Jinping or of the Chinese Communist Party, that the number of deaths, the, I mean, maybe we've seen 20,000 Russian soldiers die in Ukraine. We would see there'd be zeros added to that were China to act militarily. And I worry a lot that they would, again, it's, it's my sense that China is reactive, that when we violate the one China policy, when Tsai Ing-wen rejects the 92 consensus, then things turn bad. And we just say it's the Chinese are instigating this. Well, the Chinese are reacting to changes in policy. Well, I think, um, uh... 
as I said, my argument would be at two levels. They do react tactically to significant changes in US articulation of uh, Taiwan policy, and certainly in terms of the granularity of what is said uh, by Tsai Ing-wen's government, as they have for Taiwanese governments prior to 2016 as well. But at the same time, I mean, I, I do read the text about their resolve in terms of uh, regaining sovereignty. I uh, look at the pattern of China's military reorganization efforts since 2015, uh, the uh, combined theater operations discipline are now alive within the contracted number of military regions, informationized warfare, uh, the priority now attached to not just on rocketry, but um, uh, amphibious and maritime forces. Uh, these are not actions which, in my observation, are just going through the motions. They are there to present a series of uh, live wire military options for the Chinese to, uh, to take in a proactive form. So as I argue in the book, um, Steve, the, the, the challenge in the Taiwan question is not simply to leave all of this chance, but if there is a maturity at the highest levels of diplomacy between the two governments in Washington and Beijing, uh, harking back to the maturity I think we saw in both the uh, Kissinger and uh, Brzezinski period um, of um, the negotiation of the parameter of the relationship back in the 1970s, there is a way to identify the granularity of red lines uh, around the Taiwan question, which at least reduces the risk of us tripping into crisis, escalation and conflict and war um, when nobody is ready for it. And frankly, nobody particularly at this stage wants it. And I'm always haunted by the events in, uh, in Sarajevo uh, in uh, June, July, August of uh, 1914. When the Archduke was shot, um, A, most of the rest of the world didn't have a clue who the Archduke uh, was. Uh, B, um, nobody wanted a war in 1914. C, they then regarded it as unstoppable once the mobilization processes began. And then from a minor political event and a far-flung outpost to the Austro-Hungarian Empire, we're on the road to a slaughter of 60 million people around the world. Not a good outcome. So um, my judgment learning from that one is what can you do in terms of sophisticated realist diplomacy to reduce that risk? Never eliminate it, just reduce it. And that's the conclusion of the book, which is your suggestion of how to approach that. Getting back to kind of the, the so you, have, you have part of the book on semiconductors, which is, which is really important. But again, and you talk about Xi Jinping adopting a policy to create self-sufficiency in that, how much of that is a reaction to what the United States did by cutting off the supply of semiconductors initially to ZTE, subsequently to Huawei, and you know we have never restored them to Huawei and have basically forced the company to change its business model. Um, wouldn't we have been better off to continue to supply the Chinese? Isn't it better to have them dependent upon us for these, these things than, than uh, to become independent? Did we force that independence, I guess, is my question. That's a, a critical analytical question. If you go back to what I think was the seminal Politburo deliberation on this, Steve, which I think from memory was around about April of 2019, 
um, at the point at which the Chinese Politburo rejected uh, Liu He's uh, first proposal for the resolution of the US-China trade war, which Liu had uh, negotiated with Bob Lighthizer uh, in DC. There was um, a bit of a come to Jesus moment or a come to Marx moment in the Politburo meeting at the time uh, when they, um, uh, when Xi Jinping led the discussion as I'm advised around this core proposition. Uh, and here is my paraphrase given that I wasn't attending the meeting um, and I've not yet been furnished with a verbatim transcript of the meeting. But my understanding of the meeting was that it went along the lines of these Americans are determined to throttle our long-term economic development. They will now stop at anything either on trade uh, and on uh, technology. And therefore, uh, we need to buckle down for the next 30 years of uh, an American strategy designed to preempt and prevent our own long-term economic evolution to become the largest economy in the world. And for those reasons, we must now, uh, this is my paraphrase again, rehabilitate the concept of Zili Gongsheng, uh, national self-reliance, um, and apply that across the length and breadth of, um, of uh, China's technological and other forms of uh, economic autonomy uh, for the future. And that's one argument. And I think there is uh, a lot that happened in that critical Politburo meeting to turbocharge that direction. But as you and I both know, the China 2025 strategy, which was launched in 2015, preceded that meeting by four years. And China's move towards autonomy in all the, shall we say, commanding heights of high technology, with semiconductors at the top through to biotech at the bottom, uh, was very much heading in a parallel direction. So therefore, uh, what event turbocharged uh, which underlying trend? Um, until we have uh, the full release of the Politburo document sometime in the 22nd century, uh, we probably won't know. Uh, but um, I think it is, as they say in the classics in international relations theory, Steve, it always takes two to tango with these things. Yeah. Yeah, again, it, it relates to my view that a lot of what the Chinese do is because we push them into doing it. But, you know, the book so accurately talks about the narrative that there are times I get frustrated because I would say some of this narrative is false. You know, the idea like you have a long description of, you know, the early uh, folks who advocated for opening of China believed it would become a democracy, that it would become part of the liberal international order. Well, I was in government. That's not the case. Hmm. Never thought that was the case. Um, we believe that it would lift, it would help lift hundreds of millions of Chinese out of poverty. We believe that China as part of the international system would be a more peaceful and prosperous member of the system. But we didn't believe, I certainly didn't, those of us who lived in China didn't believe that it would become a, a democracy. So that's part of the narrative in Washington, but it's not, it's not accurate. So much of the narrative is inaccurate. 
does it frustrate you the way it does me? Or you kind of, you're such a realist, you say, sorry, this is what it is. We just have to deal with reality and we can't try and change this narrative. Well, as someone like myself who was standing in Tiananmen Square in 1989 uh, for a week just before the tanks moved in, I've never had a misty-eyed view of the, uh, the, the likelihood of, um, of the Chinese Communist Party saying, ah, we just got this wrong, you know, we really should just do what Wu Shi said in the 20s and 30s and become a liberal democracy and hand over the keys to the political kingdom uh, to um, an electoral process. That's not in a Leninist party's DNA and it never has been, either under Deng, under Jiang Zemin, under Hu Jintao or, elsewhere, or under Xi Jinping. So, and as someone who has worked as a prime minister, as a foreign minister in full partnership with successive US administrations, both Republican and Democrat on overall China strategy, like you, I've never shared the view that we're embarked on a process uh, which was likely to produce domestic political transformation in China of a fundamental nature as opposed to, shall we say, <clears throat> an incremental liberalization of the system to create more personal space for individuals, which did occur under Deng, Jiang and Hu more broadly, but is no longer occurring under Xi Jinping. But on the second point that you asked me, which is, um, does this frustrate me? I suppose uh, I've been so long in the political and diplomatic process uh, Steve, that I, I'm never allowed to have frustrations. Uh, I'm, in the, I'm in the business of uh, what I describe as being a realist analyst of what I think is actually happening in the relationship, whether I believe that uh, the factoids underpinning it are accurate or inaccurate. But to describe three things, essentially, <clears throat> how did the US-China relationship <clears throat> get to its current stage? And that's three or four chapters on uh, the history. The second is, what does Xi Jinping actually think and what are his core ideological and political and policy priorities? That's the 10 concentric circles you speak of, which is kind of some conceptual innovation of mind just to provide a level of coherence to foreigners trying to make sense of what China is doing in the world today. And the third is my attempt to outline a concept of managed strategic competition to reduce, not eliminate, uh, the prospects of crisis, conflict and war and when people criticize it by saying, well, Kevin, aren't you just kicking the can down the road? To which I would say unapologetically, you betcha, I am kicking the can down the road. I'm really old fashioned. I don't think war is a good thing. I'm, I kind of believe in peace. And, and I might be unfashionable in certain quarters these days, but war is generally a really bad idea. And it has really uncertain consequences quite apart from the human carnage on the way through. And so therefore, uh, if, if a notion such as managed strategic competition gains some, uh, some um, uh, purchase in both Beijing and uh, Washington and does enable us to get through the 2020s without falling across the tripwire and uh, bringing on a catastrophic contract, conflict, my judgment is that's not a bad outcome because when we get to the 2030s, guess what? Um, the Suwei, the way of thinking about these things in Washington and in Beijing, may have evolved um, as it's evolved over the decade before, uh, back if we look at the first decade of, the, of this century. So I'm all for buying time. I'm all for reducing the risk of catastrophic conflict. And uh, to paraphrase Deng, 
to think that those who come after us might actually be a bit smarter in resolving these things than we may have been in the past. Back to you, Steve. And as you and I both know, China changes all the time and we should not be fashioning policies that assume a static China or a static America. Well, this has given everyone a taste of what is in this book, The Avoidable War. Uh, thank you so much for writing the book. Thank you so much for helping America understand better what is going on in China, what is going on with Xi Jinping, and what is going on in the United States. You have made an enormous contribution to the literature. Thank you so much. Thank you, Steve. I appreciate it. For more interviews, videos, and links to events like this one, visit us at www.ncuscr.org.